Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport in association with Lacquer. Bicycle insurance powered by the community. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling. I'm Graham Wilgos. Joining me, as ever, Sir Bradley Wiggins. Hello. Brad, how have you been? Good, thank you, yeah. Good. Um, also very pleased to welcome back Simon Gerrans, a friend of the show by now. Simon, welcome back. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, guys. Um, and also, she said she was a, a humble presenter last time around, but, but the, the week she's just had on uh, calling the Giro d'Italia um, as our star presenter it means that the suffix, or sorry, the prefix. Here through gritted teeth, she's got a flight to catch. <laughs> star, yeah, so I better get on with it. Uh, Whereas we've got a man waiting outside absolutely, <laughs> absolutely has to go in front of her name. Orla Shenoui. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back. Um, Orla, as Brad just alluded to there, you've got a flight to catch back to Holland. Yes, I do. Um, excited to get home and, and join in the celebrations. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm just going home for the rest day. So I live in Amsterdam these days, so I'm going to um, just get a little cuddle from my kids. And what might... Get tanked up to know <laughs> What might the locals be celebrating from last night? Uh, oh, yeah, of course, Eurovision. I know I'm gutted I wasn't there to watch that, actually. That would be very exciting, because obviously, being Irish, Eurovision matters a lot. Yeah, well, the, uh, the godfather the of Eurovision, Terry yeah, Rogan. Yeah, yeah, So they lost Tom Dumoulin, but they got Eurovision, eh? Yeah. Swings and roundabouts. Exactly. Mm. So it's uh, ups and downs. Uh, Brad, are you a Eurovision man? I didn't even know it was on. No? <laughs> no, I, I saw the glimpses of the FA Cup yesterday, and boring Man City winning again. And then, obviously, I, was, I stayed up to watch the boxing last night, so okay. I was unaware. The Eurovision. I thought that had gone years ago with Terry Wogan. Australia actually featured in it this year. But they've you know been that? in it the last couple of years. They've got like a wild card entry I understand every they're getting year. Oh, it's all enough. fixed yeah. though, isn't it? Isn't it all fixed and it's who, you know, the, the judges are kind of quite... Controversial. No, it is. A bit like the Ryder Cup. You know, it's <laughs> all kind it's of It's supposed to be political. It's it? very political, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So, so yeah. obviously we didn't do very well. We never do. Well, oh, sometimes we do. Yeah, but I, yeah. Could, Katrina Brexit, Brexit. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah let's yeah, get, yeah, get yeah. on with it. Well, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we want to talk about uh, today's TT stage of the Giro, a 34.8 kilometre time trial into San Marino. It's been a marvellous day for Primoz Roglic. Not only did he win the stage, but he's put some serious time into his rivals for the GC. UAE's Valerio Conti is still in pink, but Roglic uh, is surely in the perfect position now. Here's how Rob Hatch summed up for us on commentary. Valerio Conti, the first Roman ever to don pink. He finishes his climb. It's been a brilliant ride from him today. Mature, strong, and he's pretty in pink at the top. Valerio Conti keeps the Maglia Rosa. Primoz Roglic wins the stage. Week one of the Giro is done, and the GC is all over the place. Um, so, team, the GC is all over the place, says Rob. Is that a fair summary, Brad? It's all over the place, but we haven't put it in the dryer yet. So it's kind of all messed up and the socks are all mixed up. But as I've said on, on telly, you have to look between the lines and there is a GC that is forming amongst the people that we expect to fall away. Mm. And, and that will be very soon, I'm sure, when we hit the mountains. But um, it's Rodlich, Nibali, Mollema and, and Simon Yates obviously has lost a bit of time. But that's 
the three now we expect to be in a week's time in the first three of the GC? Yeah, ultimately, I think you look at the in all Grand Tours, the first 10 days of the race are just a slow process of elimination. Someone has a crash, someone yeah. gets sick, someone gets injured, and one by one, they drop away. And then in the, I think in the final week, then you see who really the, the real contenders are. And it's quite often you'll hear riders say that. Do you think you're looking at a GC ride in, the, in this Giro and they'll just say, if I can get through that first 10 days and see where I'm at, then it's, it might be game on. So I think... That 10-day period is it's like the end of a first block, isn't it, now? And yeah. Three days, essentially. Of- yeah, and I think all the riders looked at that first rest day as like a real significant milestone. We're going to get to there and then reassess again at the first rest day because that really feels like the halfway point in the in the, in the Giro. Yeah. And I think the danger with Primoz Roglic now is that obviously he's second on GC, um, but he is the previous favourite that's that the virtual leader, if you like. And really, all he has to do, and I say that with the utmost respect because there's no such thing as all you have to do in a Grand Tour, but he can ride quite defensively now. He doesn't need to go on the attack. He doesn't need to gain any more time. Mm. He would win the Giro d'Italia with that time deficit because we expect Valerio Conti to fall away. But to be optimistic about it from a fan's point of view, we could then see, we were chatting about this in the breakaway, Simon Yates... If we get into the third week and it's do or die for him, we know how exciting he can be. We know how attacking he can be. And I loved watching him every single stage last year, just trying to get as much time as he could. If he does a reverse Simon Yates, we're talking about him doing it at Chris Froome. If he does a reverse Simon Yates where he sort of tanked it today, but then comes back and, and goes on the attack every day in the last three weeks, you just never know what could happen. I mean, that gives me goosebumps thinking about it. But I know I'm being optimistic because we, we haven't heard what happened with him. It does seem optimistic. I mean, Simon Yates has had a disaster today. He's, he's, um, Roglic has put three minutes into him. Yeah. Um, Brad, how did you see that? Uh, it was more than I thought. I said, I think I said before the show, a minute and a half. I thought Simon yeah. might lose. We knew Rodlich was capable of that performance. It was made for him that time, Joel. He's on form. He don't really realise what he's doing, so he's just going out every day and performing. I think the guys around him are more important. Jan Boven, all of these guys, it's more important for them to manage how he rides. If they get too excited, because we said he's he's kind of a work in progress. He maybe doesn't realise. We saw how excited he was at the finish. He's got to contain that now for ten days. I'm being that was a joke. Um, he, he he doesn't really you know he doesn't said, do excitement if, does he if you win a stage in the Giro you, you normally see people I'm going to just enjoy it tonight probably have a glass of wine really let it sink in we've got a nice rest day tomorrow but he's like I don't know what we're doing tomorrow you know he just he's kind of going through it as he has as he's living it so he's the favourite you know there's no doubt about it he's come out of this first 10 days in the best possible shape and he's not been without his problems either mm. we've seen a different Simon Yates today than we saw for example yeah, I'm not having the the, that, that that's all he had I'm, I'm, I'm not having it because I think that was the dreadful performance. You know, there's something to have caused that. You don't just fall off. So he's either sick, he's got knee trouble, or I don't know. And until we, until we hear, maybe it is, if it's physical, I'm, 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 I'll be shocked because of what he was saying a week ago when we yeah. said it sounds unlike him. He, he, you know, I was saying he seems different. He seems confident. And if it is physical, it's like, you know, why did you say that a week ago? I don't know. Yeah. We're just speculating. But we just don't know. That's yeah. what I was thinking when you said it on the break where you said that, you know, he could have come into this with something underlying. Or he's developed it. That's more, what would seem more, more likely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I don't think Simon Yates is the kind of person who would cover it up to the extent where he's saying everybody else should be themselves because I'm the main contender if there was any niggling doubt in his head so it's yeah it would seem maybe it's something Mm. he's developed Victor Campanats I just want a a word on him as well because he had a a curious bike change so he's he's had a mechanical he finished second on on today's stage he would surely we think have won were it not for this sort of bizarre mechanical when he must have lost upwards of of 30 seconds so mechanic gave him a spare bike we're not sure that it was his bike 
uh, he didn't then wait for him to get on the bike before pushing yeah, him. So he's that, pushing yeah, Pampanats while he's... The, the best scenario I can see now, knowing a bit more about it, because I think I was having my lunch, I didn't watch it, um, you quite often decide, so the mechanic will say to you in the back car, um, if you puncture in the first 5, 10k, we'll change the wheel, because yeah. the wheel change tends to take longer. Yeah. Anything after, we do the bike. You happy with that? And you'd say, yes, we do that, yeah. So in the final, they may have said, any problems you have on the last climb, do you just want your road bike? And he'd have said, yeah, we don't want to put you on another time trial bike just to do the last climb. That might have been agreed. The mistake came from it was in a 53.11. And you'd have thought if that was planned, the mistake came that they should have put the gear down ready to him to ride. And the mechanic was, wasn't was really helping. Was he helping? It kind of was just a big mess. And he's, I, we think he's lost the stage because of it. It was the fans who gave him a push in the end because the, the, the mechanic was running back. Yeah, so I mean, we just don't that... know, do we? I mean, it's, it, it, it's a cock-up, you know, in uncertain terms. And Lotto have lost another stage win there, really, haven't they? And this is what we were saying on, on screen this morning about how meticulous some teams are with every detail. You're taking this gel at this hour. You're taking this bicarb if you're bicarb. You're taking this fuel-in strategy. And, and, and we were saying that Rod would do that for Sky and he'd be coming for Tour de France Day. So he wouldn't be on the Tour for three weeks. He'd come in, oh, Rod's here for the for the time trial day and he'd run the ship because Rod, you know, that he's meticulous. And a team like Lotto, you can imagine them being really disorganised on days like this and it's cost them a stage win. It really has. And he deserves better than that because he was a pre-race favourite, you know, and it's it's terrible. And uh, it, it, we were saying culturally what teams are like and the disorganisation in some teams and some teams, it's ingrained in them from the track background. Middleton, you know, with their track programme with Shane Bannon, Sky, Garmin or whatever they're called these days, you know, it, it's... And I think Lotto are kind of stuck in the dark ages in some ways. I think it's probably more the new age teams. They take the, really yeah. this, take this clinical scientific approach to their equipment, to their preparation, to the timings on a day like a time trial day. Whereas the more traditional teams, maybe the, the French teams, the Belgian teams, the Italian teams, they would be a lot more relaxed in their approach. And I think in their preparation and, and how they execute a, a day like a, Well, you know, when we started at Dauphiné in 2011, the idea of warm downs. Remember I started doing a warm down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we all, all started... Adjourned. I tried it for a while, mm. and then the whole team tried it. Mm. We, everyone wore Sky, you know, this, that, and the other. Now everyone's doing now it. Now everyone does mm. it, but also I can imagine that first the mechanics moaning, "Oh, we're not doing that. It's hard work. We'll have to. We have to get nine turbos." They wouldn't have wanted it. So that's where Sky were on the front foot. We brought skin suits in in the Giro in 2010. Remember Pizzato laughing at us, going, "What are you all doing? What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, skin suit and all this. It's like now everyone wears skin. filled yeah. in helmets. We introduced them at the Giro in 2010. Yeah, I remember testing a, the first ever road race skin suit for the yeah. for the team at yeah a, a semi classic basically in Belgium, uh, leading that that Giro. So someone was trying it out before we actually got started. It was all wrong. We had the pockets completely in the wrong space. But you know, it was refined over time, and now it's used. And I think we kind of marginal gains and things get mocked and Sky, Ineos, you know, it gets mocked and all this money. But if you've got money, you can still be organised. So it's kind of a, you know, you don't need 10 million to be organised and Mm. make sure the gear's in the right. They're simple things which... To be fair to Dave, he brought in mm. warm downs. But we, we, everyone's got a turbo. And it's just that extra effort and meticulous. And they're always having meetings. Like Everyone knows what they're doing tomorrow. And, and it's that that wins your race at the end of the day. Now, that is a marginal gain, as, as simple as it is. It's, let's do the simple things well. And they didn't even put it in the right gear. If we're going to change the bike on the last climb, if that's what they've agreed, if that's what I assume it is, then we need to put it in the right gear. 
It's a level yeah. of professionalism, isn't yeah, it, crazy. more than money? Yeah. Well, come on then. So that's the that's the the difference between what you can get with money and what you can get with actually paying attention. But that to don't take details. money. That's just, no. that is just being meticulous. So okay, so you take Dave Brailsford and you put him in a team that has half the budget of Team Sky. Is he going to do it? Well? That, put it this way: if that had happened at Sky, someone would probably lose the job. Mm. He wouldn't stand for it. And what do we think? The no, that's might that's be? brutal. But that's like okay, someone else would could do that better. We what's can't straight, afford what? for that to happen. Would it happen straight away? Would it happen like that evening? Right, you're on the. Uh, Name, or would, it, would they wait until I the end of the race? It would be the guy would go home, and it's just like well, we never use him again. <laughs> And, and it, it, it almost very... wouldn't happen. You know, the ethos in that team is is so it intensely happen, yeah. professional, you know, and that, and that filters right down to everybody on the team, every mm. swan year, every mechanic, everybody knows this is the level that you work at if you want to be in and this it's team. The clarity. Everyone knows what they're doing. Mm. I think that's, that's you know, what everyone your knows job their is. role. You do your yeah, job yeah. and everyone else, you don't try and do someone else's job. So going back to your question, Graham, I, I think, like Brad said, it doesn't take a huge budget to have a, a well run team. No. Mm. Obviously, you can't have the depth of riders, the big name riders, and the big contenders and the leaders you can't have as many of them in a smaller budget team but you can definitely still have a well-run team without a lot of money to play devil's advocate though if Campen Arts is on a team where he can't possibly cannot necessarily trust the mechanics to be doing the right job should he not have checked the gearing on a spare bike if that was part of the plan to change into his road bike on the climb should that be part of his responsibility or should he be able to trust the mechanic but what I will say is when we watched it you said he's he's quite an experienced mechanic he's been around a long mm. time hasn't he mm. and that he'll, Sabotage. But he'll no he'll hide under that veil mm. oh that's Jeff mm. whatever his name is Jeff I oh, know Jeff he's 30 years Jeff he used to work with you know <laughs> you and Oh, Lord, can't, no, it's not poor Jack. So they get under this veil of responsibility. You can still do something wrong. You still can make a mistake, no matter who you are. I mean, what mistakes you make. And I think, you know, no one's beyond making a mistake, but you have to question whether they should happen in the first place. And I think that's kind of what Ineos and teams like that do so well. But some of the bigger teams would be, they're still just as disorganised, aren't they? Like tracks and in certain areas. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah, a big budget doesn't necessarily no, mean a well-run no, team either. No. Um, Brad, just a word on the TT, because you were famously a TT specialist. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, word has it. Just tell, tell us about your sort of prep. That you, how how would a, a TT day have shaped up for you? A very lonely day, actually. You know, a very individual day. You find yourself eating at different times to everyone else, mostly alone. Don't really integrate, in, interact with a lot of the other riders. Um, everyone's got their own schedule and what they're doing. You will get up. Have breakfast, go down, get on the turbo if, if you're not going to go out and look at the course because it's too far away and just, just rest really and, and just stick to your game plan. Go, I used to run through everything in my head constantly so I was sure of what I was doing. Not to wind myself up but just clarity of what I was doing and stick to it. You stick into it. Just talk to yourself. And everything would have been structured for you Every, or you would day. have structured it yourself? Again, Rod would come down the night before. You'd get a little laminated card. Yeah. That's the level we got to. Lamination. <laughs> yeah. Take it in a shower. Really. Lamination. Take it every um, and it, no, but it was it, and it was just your day. I'd always lose the card. Typical. You leave it in the room, or yeah, you'd be trying to you'd be trying to slot it in that hotel thing to put the lights on. Or, but it would say, you know, eight ten breakfast, pre race meal, two yeah. rollers, ten o'clock. Leave the hotel twelve. Get to the start. Buy carb one thirty. Start warm up two thirty. Roll to the ramp, and and that was it. But then the mechanics would all have their own cards. Mm. Swanier would have his. You're looking after Brad. You're looking after Simon. Pin his number on at fifth fourteen ten when he arrives at the bus. 
all that. It's just, it just that. And so everyone's cards matched up. It's like Uno. You know? <laughs> Simon, is that your experience as well? I may have not got the same support on those time trial days <laughs> as what Bradley got. I so, might not have had a whole team around me because they were never a big priority uh, for me. But um, I was very meticulous with, say, my preparation as far as my warm-up went. And I would always have this system where I would write my start time down and then work backwards from there yeah. to, to work out exactly at what time I needed to, say, get dressed, get on the on the, on the the trainer to start my warm-up, and I break my warm-up down into sections and t- until I knew I had to get off the trainer 10 minutes before the start because it was going to take me two minutes to get in the bus to get my helmet, uh, and then it was going to take me a further three minutes to get to the to the start ramp and really break it down like that. So it was always very clinical uh, as far as the preparation goes. It's funny, I spent two years with Simon in the same time. I said to my wife, I've learned more about him as a person in the last two or three weeks doing this because <laughs> I quite admire you. I said that, you know, as a person. And it's funny because everyone's in your bubble and we hardly spoke a lot being in the same team, but yeah. I remember, you know, it's, you were sort of, when we went to Sky, seen as a bit of a whinger. You know, you, no, hang on, hang on. There's a no, but like oh, he's, he's always moaning. Just get on with it. He's always moaning about something. And I was saying to my wife, I was saying it wasn't that he was whinging. He just had high expectations of I want this done. Why I is there not this? In the, okay, we're a new team, but okay, we need cereals here outside in the corner. And and the Swannies are going. Oh, Simon, he's he's breaking my balls, eh, Simon? <laughs> and it's like yeah, because he he he's come to this. This is his career. He expects a level of service, and yeah. he's not asking. I was just asking you to do your job in the same. If that had happened to you today, mechanic has done that. And you lost the stage. All the sacrifices you make, your family and everything, like you said, it affects your career. Yeah, you're Ulti- the one who suffers. Ultimately, you pay and if the you, price. If that so makes you stage. a winger, yeah. then f- them. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. No, um, and I thought, you know, once I got into an environment where I was backing up those expectations with the results. People actually stand back and they go, well, if he's committing to this level, we need to step up to the plate. And I really tried to lead through example in that environment. And I think once you're backing up that, this is the effort I'm putting in, so I expect everyone to come on their day and present the best version of themselves. Mm. And once the whole team rises the occasion, it's phenomenal what you can do. And And that that must make it so frustrating for Campanarts this evening. You know, he's committed everything to the World Eye record. Fair enough, the, the team allowed him to do that. But he's proven himself, he's shown... I'm the best in the world at whatever it is that I choose but, to do, and they're not getting the. Support but do you know what's sad day. with him is he he probably won't realise that he'll be <laughs> off. But he's he's a bit that's ingrained in him because mm. he's never known any different. Mm. And he's in a Belgium team. He's in the biggest Belgium team, Lotto, that's still like acting like it's 1974. And so he thinks that's what it is. He, if he went to a Sky, he'd be he'd see the difference. He'd be like. You know, mm. and I think that's the difference. And and what will happen is he'll go through the. They'll offer him a load of money. He'll resign for three years, and he'll stay there. Mm. And it's like you could be so much more, Victor. He used to watch French riders. French riders were, were notorious for staying in French teams, weren't they? Mm. They would never spread their wings. And one of the first to do it was Sylvain Chavanel. He went to Quickstep and flourished. Tour de France stage wins, nearly won Tour of Flanders, and he came out of himself. Mm. And he was like, and the Alaphilippe's another one who's mm. doing that. Yeah, they come out themselves. French riders tend to just like Demar and that. They just stay their whole career in France and. Obviously, it's a bit more international now, but you know when you see that and you see riders, you're like, you're like Tom Dumoulin. I mean, we talk about Tom Dumoulin having no help, this, that, and the other. He's ideal for Team Sky or something mm. like that, isn't he? Yeah, but do you think, and more often than not, we see this, we see riders, and I'll step away from a team like Quickstep, and they'll be poached away by a Cofidis or a smaller team with the promise of leadership and a, and yeah. a big pay packet, and they go to these smaller teams in these other environments, and they don't perform to the no. same level. Do you think that's the big reason why? Because that support and that structure is not there. I just think it's you just come down a level, and you think then it's not till it's not there you realise how good it was. People moaned last year about Sky and that. I said, just be careful what you wish for. You know, we won't realise what Sky did for cycling this last ten years until it's gone. 
And luckily, Ineos, Ineos came along. Imagine Ineos didn't come along and them guys all got to find a new team next year. And in three or four years' time, we'd have seen the effects of that. And it's like, see, you, know, you all might see how good it was. Mm. You know? mm. And I think that's what you've got to be careful of. We were kind of sport at Sky, really. And obviously, you went to Mitchelton, but they had the same mentality because it, it was basically a track programme that was evolving into a road programme, wasn't it? Yeah, I obviously moved from, from Sky to Green Edge and my sort of career kicked on another level because I just sort of found myself in an environment then, had my best results there. Because I was in a team, I'd come from that mentality of really taking care of those those small 1% yeah. marginal gains that I'd learned at Sky and applied that in a new team. And then I was aligned with a team that had my the same objectives as myself. We were there to win individual stages, try and win one-day races, um, and that's ultimately what I was best yeah. at. So we've come to tomorrow's rest day. Simon, is it fair to say, is if, if Brad's our TT specialist, you're our rest day specialist? Can we, <laughs> can we, can we call you as such? Well, I, I enjoyed the rest day. I always look forward to them, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, for tomorrow's rest day, uh, we were looking actually forward one, further, one day after that, and it's a pancake flat 145k road stage. A lot of riders will be seeing that as a rest day as well. So they've basically got two in a row here. Having that easier day, the day after the rest day, really gives everyone the luxury of being able to take it relatively easy tomorrow, with the exception of the guys that are targeting the next day. And they'd have finished yesterday, one week, and you think, I've got two weeks to go, but they did on today, rest day tomorrow, 140, and all of a sudden it's Wednesday, and you're like, oh, we're halfway through. <laughs> so this next few days goes quick, and then you then you get into the sort of the job end of the, of the race, really, and it, this second week always goes a lot quicker than that first week, I always find. They'll be pretty uh, grateful for the rest day, we think, because it's been, it's been pretty grim weather-wise all week. Orla, you said earlier, you sort of exclaimed in the green room, I'm so happy I'm not at Estuero. It's miserable. Because uh, weather-wise it has been. It's possibly the only time in history that Feltham has been more desirable. Yeah. She's still rolling in the men's toilet yet. <laughs> I don't plan to go into Which the men's is, toilet would be either. If she did, but we, don't, we don't recommend it. How do you know I haven't been? She walked uh, in, she stood at the urinal. I go, oh. <laughs> but, that might change your opinion. <laughs> but it's been grim, hasn't it? It has been grim. The thing is, though, I think we always forget we've got collective amnesia about the Giro d'Italia and we always think it's going to be beautiful and sunny because when we look yeah. back at those lovely montages, they're the bits that we that stick in our heads and we forget about the wet, rainy, snowy days. But the Giro was often really miserable. It's brutal. It really is brutal. is brutal. And yeah. as a journalist, it's brutal as well because I know, obviously, we're not, we're not riding like hundreds of kilometres every day. But um, I mean, I remember 2013 being, um, what was it, stage 19, I think was cancelled because of snow stage 20 was rerouted because of the snow I don't know why we seem to forget it every year but yeah it's quite horrific yeah it's a memory trick isn't it you, mm. your it's like ha- it's like having a child you forget how hard it is and then you have another one well none mm. of us would know you're the only one who can <laughs> well yeah. he, he can tell us about that um, on on the the bad weather actually it was the old Lance Armstrong thing he would always look around at the beginning of a race and if it was sort mm. of pouring it down like it has been in Italy he would basically say look he'd sort of tap his nearest teammate on the shoulder and go look half these guys have just quit the race because he knew yeah. that they wouldn't relish riding. You know, you sort of feel a failure if you admit to sort of being lost at that point. But I was I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> we were in that half, right. obviously, badly enough. Oh, so I was going to come to you, Simon. You know, that's mm. not that's not showing a weakness. That's just like it, it brings so many other things to think about, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just it's, uh, staying warm was my biggest problem. You know, I, yeah. I know I'm going to get cold, and uh, once you get cold, you, you know you don't function. You don't often you think, you know, I'm not going to be able, you know, whatever. You, sometimes you get to the point you can't feel your hands, you can't change gear. You tend not to eat as much because you've got all capes. And, you know, Nico was talking about it on the show the other day, wasn't he? And kind of little tricks you can do because yeah. it, it is difficult to manage. But I think that comes back to what you're good at. If, you, if you're if you a rider that excels in those conditions, you look forward to those days because you've just eliminated half the peloton. I was in the other end of the spectrum. I thrived in the heat. So riders yeah. that turn up to two and under and go, oh, it's above 40 degrees. This is going to be hell. Where I'd be 
like thinking those days, obviously I would suffer like everybody else, but I would look forward to those days because it was going to be to my advantage. That's the thing I was going to say. Is it about excelling in those conditions or just not suffering as much as the others? Can I mean, can you excel in conditions like we were seeing at the Jira War, 40 plus degree heat? Or do you just handle it better yeah, you than can. anybody else? I think else. some people handle the heat better than others. Some people, are, I think, with all the tests, naturally excrete. Like the ones that covered in salt on their shorts and stuff, mm. that's a natural byproduct of not being able to struggle with the heat. That's, you're, you're sweating electrolytes and valuable salts out. Mm. Um, but some riders don't do that, do they? They're kind no. of like lizards. They love the heat. And I think that, that, that there is some people that cope with it and that some people that don't. Same with the cold weather. Stephen Dion was one he never was, if it was snowing at Kern Brussels Kern he wouldn't wear knee warmers leg warmers never wore gloves either some people just didn't did they Tim Wellens Kelly King yeah, Kelly Tim Wellens see how many races he, he wins and I'd love to know the percentage of his race wins come in like brutally cold Stand or wet hard. conditions mm. yeah, yeah. Well, this is it I wanted to touch briefly on extreme conditions because we talked a little bit last week off the back mm-hmm. of Marcel Kittle's news that he was taking a, an indefinite break from cycling about the impact on your mental health that, that being a top athlete can have I wonder if we can just sort of pull up the thread of, of the, the impact that being an athlete at the top level can have on your physical well-being as well because particularly with cycling you've got to go to these real extremes Simon let's start with you on this one because you were saying earlier that part of your undoing might have been that uh, you weren't extreme enough well, maybe in personality. Yeah, oh, I, I think see. probably more so in personality than in the conditions or anything like that that I could handle. And I think it's going back to it's, it de- deviating away a little bit from what you were what saying. Do you think, but what do you mean by that? Because le- I, I would describe that as you've got a brain. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, but I think most... Are you, most too in- you were almost too, in- too intelligent for it. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying get rid of him. I'm not, I'm no, not saying. I'm saying most, I mean, like, most athletes are very extreme in their mentality you've, when you've they're working be hard. A bit on the spectrum as well, haven't you? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's that. about intelligence, but because uh, I think about this a lot because I interview yeah. athletes a lot, and I don't know how some of it can be intelligence, but some of it can be just having that capacity for darkness. I think a lot of champions just have a darkness that they can tap into, that they can channel that people who are balanced in life just don't have. And that's why most people will not be champions at whatever they do because most people find it easier to be comfortable. There are some people, I think, who thrive a little bit on feeling that discomfort on, or, or, or they've got some sort of a fuel within them that they're trying to fight or that keeps them going. But there's always something, I think, a little bit of a trigger that most of us just don't have. I think with the road, it's the time you've got to think... Someone like Chris Hoy, it's up on the top of the track, 10 seconds, bang, amazing athlete. Road, you've got a lot of time to think, haven't you? Mm. You know, you've got six hours to think, day after day. You go training for six hours, a lot of time to think. You can, and you can overthink. Maybe that's got something to do with it. It's those extreme, it's like an extreme endurance sport. Mm. You've got to be a specific person to do an extreme endurance event. And that might have something to do with it. Yeah, well, I think what I was saying is extreme, but I look actually, in reflection... I'm fairly extreme in the way that I've done things like obviously saying athletes, they're very extreme. In fact, they'll commit to their sport 100%. When they're in their downtime, they'll like commit to partying 100%, mm-hmm. you know, until they yeah. can't party longer. I've stepped off the bike and I've committed to a day job, you know, where I'm basically sat at a desk for 12 hours a day yeah. and out of the house for sort of 14 or 15 hours a day. So it's a whole other extreme <laughs> that I've committed to. And I think you have to, you must be extreme, Simon. And maybe maybe because you've got some sort of a balance in your life with wife and kids and all the rest of it, you don't see it. But you you know, to win Milan San Remo, a normal person will not be able to push themselves to the levels, to the limits that you've got to do to win a bike race like that. So even if you don't recognise it in yourself, go to therapy, there's gonna be something there. <laughs> I'd have a field day. <laughs> but it's the is it that, that balance of, of finding happiness off the bike during your career? Can that affect how uh, effective you can be? 
be on the bike because if you've got this, this I don't know. balance off of it, I think you need you're not willing to push yourself to those same extremes. I think you need good support structure around you. You know, if you've got a wife then that that's supportive of you that my wife says to me, you know, I don't care if you win or not. I want you to win because I see how hard you've worked for it, but we're still here when you get back, you know? We'll always be here when you get, whether you win or not. And I think that's important, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's... Um, it's important it, for your overall well-being. Yeah, and your kids. So my daughter from a young age detached from Bradley Wiggins. So I spoke to her on the phone in 2011. She said, I saw Bradley Wiggins crash today. <laughs> she she really? only saw me as daddy. She still does. <laughs> yeah. Whereas my son, when, we, when he was in nursery or infant school, wrote on one work assignment that my hero is Bradley Wiggins. He saw me as a hero, and he was the one who rode down the Champs-Élysées with me. She didn't want to ride down the Champs-Élysées. So that's the difference, as you see, kind of having, like, your daughter, you come home, she just wants a dad home. I don't care mm. if you won or not. Don't care if you won the Tour de France. That so have... That's important, because that's grounding, isn't it? You know, your kids are more grounding more than anything. Yeah. How amazing that your son thought of you as his hero. I think that's But now he doesn't, you see. Really? Yeah. Why? Who's his hero now? Because he's just grown up. Peter Sagan, actually. He likes yeah. Peter. He likes Cav. So fickle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's a question for you, then. Would you want your kids to, to be a professional cyclist? I wouldn't, no. But I'm not going to hold him back if he does, you know. But um, I don't mind him doing the track, actually. If he wants to be a team pursuit or something, it's a bit less harsh. But it's not a healthy lifestyle. I think it's getting more and more unhealthy because, you know, you, the level of expectation, the level of competition, there's no easy races anymore, is there? No. You can start racing in January and you finish in October. But it's like, well, I won't put too much weight on because we've got the camp in December and I want to make sure I'm up there with the first group when we go up the climbs. And, you know, and you just you don't let yourself go. And it's just I worry for people like Teo that are going to spend a good 15, 16, 17 years hovering around five, six, four, five, six, seven percent body fat. I, I don't think that's a healthy thing. You know, I retired, went for a DEXA scan. I got um, bone density of a 65 year old woman. I had mild osteoporosis, you know. Then was part of a study in that taking collagen to stuff and doing weight bearing exercise and training to see if we if we can increase bone density. It's not a healthy life. It's a brilliant sport and a brilliant activity. The social aspects, the fitness, but the elite level and, I, and you, it's probably true of most sports, isn't it? Mm. Marathon running mm. isn't a healthy mm. thing. Yeah, you say running's healthy for you. It's a good it sport, is. but yeah. marathon running so at the I highest think, level. I think it's probably true of any sport at the elite. Sports getting more elite, isn't it? Yeah, is is yeah. probably not a healthy thing. I think I'd be less bothered by my daughter being a professional cyclist than my son because I think at least in women's cycling it's becoming more professional now so it is becoming more of a career option but it's not to the level of, of men's cycling where it's so extreme so I think but do you think any women in cycling have developed eating disorders and things oh, definitely Which, definitely you know, yeah but then again but, but for women they're eating encouraged. disorders are, are also quite common anyway yes anyway yes. yeah so I'm not sure that being a cyclist I think being a cyclist it's or any elite athlete probably compounds yeah. it yeah. but I think women are more used to it anyway and I, because of that then I would I would teach my kids I hope about that from a young age but, but I think that's yeah, elite a, sport a societal is, thing anyway isn't exactly it? exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think elite sport, it's a hard, hard, hard game. And like I say, because because my take on it is that it does come with this level of drive that can drive you to distraction, you know, mm. that I would worry about the mental side of it actually as much as the physical side, I guess. Simon, are you going to push them to banking or, or pro cycling? <laughs> no, I think every parent, they really just, ultimately, they, they want their kids to be healthy, they want their kids to be well-rounded and well-mannered, yeah. you know, and... Well, that's the best start you can have. Yeah, that's the best yeah. start you can have. And wherever they take that, you know, whether and, and then what they they want to pursue in their lives, that's mm. on them. And I yeah. think you can only sort of guide them in a certain direction. But, you know, I think if my kids, yeah. they, get, they want to ride a bike, um, I'll, I'll struggle to stop them. <laughs> okay. Um, Orla, you've got a flight to Speaking catch. So we'll kids. say yeah, we'll say we'll say a, a fond farewell to you and see you again. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and we'll be back with more on the Bradley Wiggins show right after this. 
Cycling fans across Europe will be able to watch all three Grand Tours live on Eurosport and Eurosport Player, available on the app and online via eurosport.co.uk. Eurosport Player also allows viewers to catch up and relive all the action on demand. Eurosport will bring fans unrivaled expertise and analysis from all the best moments of the Giro d'Italia, Tour de France and Vuelta España. Try it for yourself on the app or at eurosport.co.uk. Welcome back to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport in association with Lacquer. Uh, we say goodbye to Orla, who's run to get her flight home in her place, but no less glamorous. A warm welcome to Brian Smith, the two-time British road race champion who's been commentating for Eurosport on the Giro and the Tour of California for us this week. Brian. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, the, the biggest news of the week, arguably, Tom Dumoulin crashing hard on stage four, beginning stage five, but abandoning the race um, just a, a, a kilometre after the neutralised zone. It's massive for, for Big Tom. It, he, he talks about the Giro as being a golden opportunity for him, Brad. It's, it's a big blow for the Giro overall because we're talking about one less big hitter going for the GC. Yeah. Is it, though, good news for the Tour de France this year? Well, it remains to be seen, doesn't it? He was coming in under form, I think, this year, wasn't he? He was definitely... He was riding himself into form, yeah. um, It happens to everyone at some time. We've both crashed out Tour de France's. G crashed out, broken collarbone. You know, Froome's crashed out. In this day and age, with the way cycling is now, you're going to have a crash in in, in a Grand Tour. It's carnage. And it's amazing that you look at his last, the Vuelta, where he was up there, he nearly won. The Giro, where he won. The Tour, he got second. The Giro, he got second again last year. He's had a good run. So if this is his bad luck, then mm. he's done all right. When you crash and you're in that situation where you are a race leader, that you've been in exactly this situation, Brad, where all the focus is on you, mm. all the expectation is on you, is it an, a relief in a way when you do crash? Because you, I wouldn't say it's a relief. You know, it's, it's a weird feeling, isn't it, when you watch the race carry on and you're not in it? Mm. It's a funny thing. I didn't realise it until I was in the ambulance and I got to the hospital and someone else has crashed in the same crash. The guy who's riding this race, actually, the French lad, Galopin. We're both in, in the emergency thing, you know, and it's like the realisation that the race has carried on and you've actually left it. It, does, it. it strikes you at a moment, you think, no, that's it, my tour. I was expecting to be here for three weeks, mm. and it's over. And you start thinking about stuff like we were talking Oh, I've got to get my stuff out of my locker and can you make sure you get all that stuff out of my locker because I'm flying home tomorrow and it's actually quite you go back to the hotel sometimes don't you and you see the other guys and they're all like really sorry for you and you're people don't know what to say yeah, it's, it's a funny thing it's it, a funny experience it's yeah. a funny thing and I think that wave of emotion hits you at different times for different people yeah. um, but once you've sort of succumbed with that it is kind of nearly well you do look forward to getting back home getting yeah, once you home it wears off what, yeah days, it does wear yeah. home wear, wear off reasonably quickly but it is ultimately very disappointing when you crash yeah. out of a race like that that and and you know only Tom will know how how hard he worked uh, to prepare for this for this mm. Giro and no doubt that he sort of did everything he could to be in the best shape possible and and give it his best shot so I think it is very disappointing for him it is very disappointing for us watching the Giro but um, it's fantastic for the Tour de France I think going back to your question because I think this will put him in better stead mm. uh, to be sort of more of a contender even more so for the Tour de France okay Brian. You've been calling the Tour of California for us this week. Uh, it came down to the Battle of Mount Baldy, really, didn't it? George Bennett, Richie Port fighting it out towards the top, but Tade Pojkar and uh, Sergio Higuita were a class above in the end. Bennett had a dig with about 300 metres to go on that stage, uh, but Pojkar always looked in control. It did. There was a bit of controversy in California uh, a few stages before mm. with uh, TJ Van Garderen. Mm. Uh, the jury waived the rules, the three-kilometre rule, and he stayed in that jersey. So that, that was a bit of controversy but when we come on to Mount Baldy it was um, Higita that took it on and uh, Pogacar 
held back a little bit, came up at the right time. You got to remember that um, Igita started the season riding for Uskadi team, a continental team, mm. while Pogachar was winning Tour of Algarve. He won Lavanier last year, and I can't say experience, but he obviously knew what he was capable of because he's twenty years old, Pogachar. The two of them battled into the final final corner. At one stage, they were looking at each other, and that's when. Uh, George Bennett was coming back at them, but George Bennett was just focusing on and getting back to them, and they were focusing on battling out for the stage win. And Igita came round the corner, the last corner, Mount Baldy, a little bit wide. Pogachar came in the inside and took the victory, and then he went on to win the race. We're seeing the emergence now of some great young talent. Well, he's 20 years old, youngest ever winner of a, a World, World Tour, Tour stage events. race, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you get Richie Port there. Again, disappointing. He had a little bit of a mechanical, but that was a big race. And the reason why I think Richie Port went there was to deliver a win, mm. and he failed. Mm. And I wonder what is the future of uh, Richie but do, Port. Do you think he went there to win? I, I mean, I had quite a things you on the grave. I certainly did. Yeah. He's, he, he kind of earned on the grapevine that he got told to go there. It wasn't part of his original plan, I don't know. Simon, you may know. I mean, Pressure on the team. He's not lived up to what they expected of him. And I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it, we talk about Trek, they seem they don't know where they're going at the moment, I think. They think they've put a lot into Richie, but it seems like they've really got a plan now. Yeah, well, I think ultimately I think when a team like Trek sign a, a rider of Richie's calibre, they expect, as a minimum, that he's going to perform how he's performed in his previous team. Yeah. And he hasn't performed at that level this year, and I think he'll be the first to admit that. Um, he got his traditional Wollonga stage win and Tour Down Under, but he's shown very little since. So I think the pressure is mounting on Richie from the team to do a result. Trek being an American team, they were thought, OK, we've got this marquee rider on the team. Let's send him to Tour of California so hopefully he can have an impact on that stage race. But um, I think Richie's big goal from here moving forward will probably be the, the, the Tour de France. Yeah. I'm sure he'll do the Tour of Swiss or the Dolphin leading into that. But, um, yeah, it's a real pity for him that he didn't get the, the win there today. Yeah. But back on Pogacar, this guy is continuing to impress. I watched him in the in the Walter Algarve this year where he, he led the race in, and he had support of his teammates going into the last stage. He ended up on his own fairly early on with very limited support and he showed the maturity to keep a level head and ride in and at ride on and, and hang on to the yellow jersey in the final stage. He was very, very impressive. Future tech, Grand Tour winner? Potentially, at 20 years Do you years think now the emergence of this generation with Bernal, yeah. this fella, I mean, it's kind of like there's, there's a takeover happening, isn't it? And we'll see G and the Frooms and this will go. And this is kind of the, our next 10 years of Grand Tour winners. Well, they did exactly the same in California uh, with the Education First. I was scratching my head in commentary that they had a, a quality young rider there, Pogacar, yeah. and they were doing all the work. I don't think he had the team to support him. Mm. They helped him as much as they could, but Education First went there with their A-team. They wanted to win the race, and they came away with uh, second place, uh, and I think they would be disappointed. OK, Igita, he's another young Colombian rider coming up here, starting, I think, over the last couple of years, he was with the Manzano Postabon team, and he ne- he wasn't kept on with that team. He went to he wanted to ride in Europe, which I think is a a, a bullshit move. I don't want to ride for uh, uh, one of the best national teams uh, or professional teams in Colombia. Went to Euskadi, started the year, was riding his races uh, Valencia, the same races, getting up there. But the two of them were just hammer and tong at it. But Pogacar, he just Lavinia last year, Algarve, now California. He's definitely going places, and um, I don't know if he'll be in that team next year. So Higita finished second overall on GC. Um, Kaspar Asgreen at De Koenig, quick step. Uh, 
rounds out the podium. That's another top rider. He's he's starting to show some form as well. When you consider Brad, you know, you're a big rider. He's he's an excellent time trialist uh, at Screen. Yeah. He won a stage, uh, the second stage, which was up, up at like two, three thousand metres above sea level. He was getting up in sprints as well. And that was a big test for him in Baldy. Yeah. There's no fear with these young riders anymore, is there? They can be winning these World Tour races at this age. There's no hierarchy anymore. Mm. These guys are just coming through now when they're able to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good to see for the sport. Do you feel that way, Simon, as a young rider? Do you feel like you had to wait your turn? Did you feel like there was this hierarchy that you had to slot into and sort of earn your colours before you could really start to show what you could do? Very much so. I remember, you know, I, I would go to races knowing that, you know, I was so far down the pecking order in a team that um, that I always had to sort of do my time, do the hard work, do that sort of stuff to gain the respect of my teammates uh, before I was going to be in a position that I was going to get support. So what I really tried to do early on in my career was target races that weren't so important to anyone else in the team. And you could do that back then. There were races in sort of down periods where you, you knew the team leaders didn't really care about it, so you were going to have opportunity. You may have not got support, but at least you were going to be able to go and do your own race. In French teams, it was either very early season, the races that, that started in the Southern Hemisphere, or races off the back of the Tour de France where they'd basically switched off. They were thinking more about cashing in, doing a few yeah. criteriums, and there were some great opportunities there. So I really you know, tried to profit from those periods of the season where the support wasn't there, but I was still going to get an opportunity. Okay, more from the Bradley Wiggins show after this. Listeners, it's time to tell you a bit more about our sponsor, Lacquer. Lacquer is a smarter way of insuring your bike and your gear. It's a community of cyclists joining together to save each other money. Lacquer covers all the basics like theft and accidental loss and damage, both at home and abroad. It'll also cover you in sportives and competition races, so long as you're not riding in the pro peloton. How does Lacquer work, you ask? Well, instead of charging you a fixed premium, with Lacquer you only pay a small share of the community's claims cost, and your share is proportionate to how much you insure. Lacquer locks in a maximum price cap to make sure there are no nasty surprises, even in months with lots of claims amongst the community. And when there are no claims that month, you could even pay nothing at all. Rest assured, claims are accepted fast, usually within 24 hours. On average, Lacquer's members have saved 61% on bike insurance, so why don't you investigate the benefits for yourself? Find out more at lacquer.co.uk and enter the promo code WIGGINS to get £10 off. That's L-A-K-A and the promo code W-I-G-G-I-N-S. One of the most infamous days in Grand Tour racing came in the 1988 Giro d'Italia when the peloton went up the Gavia in brutal, freezing conditions. American 7-Eleven rider Andy Hampston wrote himself into folklore that day with a heroic attack in a snowstorm on the climb that set up his GC victory. He rode almost the entire field off his wheel. Uh, Gazzetto della Sport called the stage the day the hard men cried. Uh, and I'm very pleased to say he's he's not crying, but he's joined us this afternoon for a chat from Colorado. Andy, hi. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Um, Brad, that stage up the Gavia stands out for you, doesn't it? You were a big Andy fan as a kid watching him on TV. And that's the sort of that's the, the real sort of folklore stuff that you've grown up with. Yeah, I, I wasn't really watching cycling when Andy won the Giro. But thanks for coming on, Andy. It's a pleasure for me anyway, because I was a big Motorola fan more than anything when you were riding with Sean and Phil Anderson. And um, I, in particular, I remember watching Andy win the Alpe d'Huez stage of the Tour de France in 1992. And more famously, I remember you pushing kids away that were trying to push you up and you just kind of... I. I still remember that to this day and kind of I think the same day Greg LeMond had retired from the tour in 92 
And then obviously you went on to ride for Miguel Indurain, et cetera, et cetera. But what are your memories now? Because it's amazing. It's 31 years since that Giro in 88. And we were just talking about you didn't have the strongest team either, did you? And that, that stage in particular at the Garvia has kind of gone down in, in folklore, really. And obviously an American winning on Italian soil when it was a very Italian race and, you know, combines and mafia. You kind of took it to the Italians, didn't you? Yeah, it, there were quite a few things to deal with, which is one reason I really love now as a spectator watching the Giro over the Tour de France because it's less predictable. There's always talk about the Italians working together. But in 88, you, you'll probably recall 87 was phenomenal because it was Stephen Roche and Millar and... The, the whole podium was foreigners, with, of course, Stephen Roche being the devil because he beat his Italian teammate. It, it was very hostile. So I was aware of that. I, I raced a lot in Italy. My whole team really liked racing in Italy. We had an Italian co-sponsor, um, a wonderful man that made Hunved washing machines. But we had a very savvy coach in Mike Neal, and he was very good explaining all he could, including politics, race politics to us. So we, we, we knew we were very comfortable in Italy. We knew if the Italians wanted to gang up on us, it would be really tricky. Um, so we kept our politics pretty clean. And the advantage of being a foreigner racing the Giro is the Italians really want to win their race, but they really don't want another Italian. They don't want a rival to win it. So, you know, we didn't have the team to strong arm our way into the race, but we were smart enough to, you know, stay out of the way the first week. We had a really good team time trial. The team completely took care of me. Um, and the Gavia happened, I think, eight or nine stages from the finish. I mean, I don't think people realise that. We were talking just how international the field is now. The amount of Australians, the amount of Americans, the amount of English riding. Then you guys were outsiders, weren't you? Treated like outside. You were riding Huffy bikes. You weren't riding Carl Nargos or Pinarellos. You were wearing Oakley Pilots. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, and in some ways, how good you were would have them off because it's it was so against tradition of what they would perceive or what their perception of what a Giro winner should look like and now it's just the norm that's a great point Brad because in 85 7-Eleven also did the Giro as its first tour of just about anything I mean they did they did the tour of Sicily and I joined that team just on a one-month contract and we were all rookies other than um, Jonathan Boyer he was our token veteran um, and there was the Giro was much different then. I'm sure there was a lot of ribbing. There was probably hazing to be done. But none of us outside of Jonathan Boyer understood much Italian. And we just acted like a bunch of cowboys. I think we were supposed to be deferring to all the the hierarchy of Italian cycling. But we didn't care about it. We just wanted to race. It was a really rare opportunity in 1985 for a group of Americans to actually do a fantastic race. It was my first pro race ever. And we would just wretchedly tell them to f*** off. <laughs> like, we knew how to swear in Italian. And I realize now with a bit of age that maybe we could have been more diplomatic about it. But our 7-Eleven, the 7-Eleven team's attitude when we were racing in Italy or anywhere else was, this is our chance. We've got to take it. And their traditions didn't mean that much to us. Um, and one of your last Giro's run for Motorola, we've got one of your teammates from that race here. He said he was pivotal to your top 10 on GC that year. Um, Brian Smith is with us. 
Hi, Andy, how are you doing? He's let himself go a bit, so you might not recognise him. <laughs> You're looking good. It's been fun following you on the other on the other end of the television all these years. No, it was good. Uh, you, you talked about being being a rookie, and you know, I was a bit of a rookie riding at my first ever Grand Tour, the Giro d'Italia, with you, and it was a bit of an honour for me because you'd won it before. But you know, we really went in there as kind of underdogs to see what we could do. And if you can remember that Giro, it was so brutal. Twenty-one days, twenty-two stages, and it was just—I think there was about what ninety-five, ninety-six finishers in that that year. Yeah, they—they they, they, you you hit the curve when they they were throwing the mountains back into the race. But there was some some good stages in that. I can remember going over the Stelvio. You remember the Mortarolo climb, won't you, from that tour? Oh yeah, <laughs> and we were going up it in about thirty-nine, twenty-three in those days. And it, it looks like someone's driveway as as we race up to it. Yeah, no, there was plenty of good memories in that st- that that race for for me. I learned a lot from that, and I think um, after the Giro, I won my second British Championships two weeks afterwards. But it was great to learn from someone who'd won it. Great to learn from you, and I think personally, we we seemed to hit it off for some reason. I think you know later on in the year, we used to ride together, and I think we had you had your first coffee in Italy together. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was late comer to coffee. I remember remember Sean Yates and a lot of my teammates just loved coffee. So of course we loved racing in Italy because the coffee's better. And I spent years wasted years of my career arguing. Well, why would you have a great coffee with all the caffeine at the beginning of a six hour bike race? You know, if someone could hand us one at the end, I would I would have one. They say, oh, you don't you know you just don't understand why be in Italy if you don't drink coffee. And I think. We were in some small race in southern Italy, and before the stage, I remember having a coffee, and it, it was just sort of like my Barney moment, if you're Homer Simpson fans, where the bells went off, and I understood what great coffee was all about. So it was fun sharing that with you. Exactly, and you really get into the, the culture of Italy, because you ended up, I don't know if you still got your place in Italy, but also, you. I remember in one of the, the days that we went riding, we went looking for a, a barrel for your wine, if you can remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bought a little farm towards you know towards those years we were together. It made there's a vineyard on it and made made some wine there. No, I still live there. I I, I do bicycle tours with my wife and and my buddies. We take tourists around different parts of Italy. So it's it's fun because I get to go back to the Gavi. I get to go back to a lot of the places we raced, um, but do it with more polite company. Andy, I just want to bring it back to that famous Gavia stage, and in particular, that what you were wearing, because I think you, you'd famously, your, your DS had bought gloves from a ski shop for you so that you, you basically wouldn't freeze your hands off on the descent. Because you know, like we all know when, you, when you're, you're going up, you're working hard, so you, you're basically keeping yourself warm. But it, I think for a lot of the riders that day, it was the descent that really killed them. Absolutely. Um, it, it was an interesting story because the team went shopping that morning and bought ski gear or whatever looked warm for everyone. So our team manager was one kilometer from the top with a musette bag of clothing for each rider. So we didn't have to worry about taking too much. I did keep a pair of um, neoprene diving gloves on, knowing from experience that once your hands are frozen, you can't put other clothes on. But before the climb, I stripped down. It was bucketing rain. It was sleeting. It was as cold and wet as could be before we got to the, the base of the Gavia. But the team kept me drowned in hot, sweet tea from the car 
And I had three layers of rain gear and warm clothes, but I took all of those off, booties off, everything. But I had a, a very thin, long sleeve undershirt, a wool jersey, which was the combination jersey from the Giro. But, you know, no hat, but I kept the diving gloves. The team led me out on the, the lower slope after Ponte de Leno. It's, you know, it's six or eight percent on a nice modern road for about six kilometers. And then with about 12 or 13 kilometers from the top, it Massimo Testa explained it'll narrow down to a one lane road, turn to dirt, and there'll be a, a stand of tall pine trees. So I had the team lead me out to that point. And, and there was, you know, tactically, I didn't, I didn't have many options. I rode away from everyone two days ago um, to win the race, so I, I couldn't pretend I wasn't doing well. People knew I wanted to attack. I thought, well, it's a long way to the top. I don't want to go 100%, but I'll do three really hard attacks at the very base and just sort things out on the climb. And my first attack, I got away. Um, and I could see, since the switchbacks are so tight, I could look back and see all my competitors not together. It was too steep to draft. Um, and I, I just thought, okay, now it's, you know, I was very, very excited to to go as fast as I could, as climbers like to. But I held back a bit. Um, and Eric Broykink caught me near the top. So we went over the top with him. And I thought I was in pretty good shape. But I, I remember before I put on my wool hat, my neck warmer, about four Ks before the top, I, I dried my hair with my hand and a snowball that had formed on my head that I wasn't aware of rolled down my back. And I thought, wow, I am, I think I'm holding back, but I'm colder. You know, I know I'm going well, but I, I'm, I'm already colder. So I have to watch out that I don't lose my wits on the descent. And I can't explain how cold it was or what, what everyone went through that day. It was certainly the hardest, the most challenging experience I've had as an athlete, but it was also the most gratifying, not just because I was second on the stage and took over the lead, but it was, you know, dreaming as a child of just being a bike racer and, you know, what if I ever got to a big tour and then doing it with a really cool team of, of friends. It was, it was a really great moment in my career where everything came together and I, I could take the jersey. Uh, Andy, I'll, I'll wrap it up here because we don't take up too much of your time. But I asked for you to be on this show because, in my eyes, I think you're equally as as important in the whole story of why US cycling is where it is today as Greg LeMond and as Lance Armstrong. But you kind of almost get overlooked and failed to get mentioned because of those guys. And I think, do you, are you still sort of, obviously, you have lived quite a normal life since you retired and have very little to do with cycling in terms of being involved with teams and stuff there. But do you have any sort of kind of idea? Do, do you still have any contact with the current day riders? I mean, what do you think of the current day riders? Do they do they show appreciation of just kind of how integral and how important you were for paving the way for the guys that are doing it today? I mean, that, that's an honor um, to have that question from you, Brad. A, I don't hang around the races. Sometimes in Colorado, I look at them. If, if some people I know who are working with the team, not racing anymore, if I can run into them, I, I'm really delighted to do it. But no, I, I don't go to many races. Um, I love watching the races. It, it's confusing to me. Confusing. It, it's dead simple. I, I had the beautiful honor and luck of racing for Lavi Claire in 1986. And we raced like a bunch of cowboys every race. It was just go on the offensive. And that's that's changed in the last 
certainly 15 tour victories. It's trains of teams keeping their leader in front. Um, so, so looking at these early stages of the Giro, it, it just there's a lot of crashes. So there's to me, it looks like a bunch of trains on three tracks, but there's six trains trying to trying to be at the front of the peloton. I'm really looking forward to seeing this Giro sort out when it really gets down to the captains or, you know, maybe someone has two or three teammates in a mountain stage, but I'm not anticipating that. So I, I think that tactically in the races, I think that's the big change I've seen is people rely so much on teammates to dominate a race and hang on to a slim lead. And I was really fortunate to race in a period with, you know, fantastic racers like Lamond and Hino where it was really the character of the racer that made a big difference. You know, we try to hire great teammates to help me in the mountains or whatever the objective was. But, you know, I was looking up to people I was racing with, but a bit older were completely dominated by Bernardino, who is a really fun person to observe. I can't possibly race like him, but I can understand how he does it. And that's, that era is not around anymore. Andy, we're going to wrap up and say thank you ever so much for joining us. I read that you had a line. So you, you mentioned earlier that you didn't speak much Italian, but I read that you learned enough to be able to say to a journalist, look, I felt good last night. And then you drop in the, the name of the, the local dish that was popular as well. Is that right? <laughs> it's, it's quite good now, but that, that's exactly... A journalist would ask me... Uh, it started being interviewed on the podium by um, Dazan, who did all the interviews, but his English was terrible, and I knew more Italian than his English, so I, I actually practiced my Italian on journalists, and as soon as I couldn't understand the follow-up question, I would just refer to how great the food was the previous night and how I'm looking forward to Pizzocchi now that we're in, in Bormio, which actually, I think, helped me overcome any potential hostility from Italians. Food's good. Food's good. All right, well, thanks again, Andy, um, and we'll just say uh, goodbye for now, and, and hopefully we'll speak to you again. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. You're listening to The Bradley Wiggins Show from Eurosport. Welcome back to The Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Brad, time for an ever-popular part of the show. Uh, ask Brad. This week, it's a fan of the show. He listens to the uh, our podcast every week, your podcast, I should say, in the Ineos team bus, uh, or so we understand. Here he is. Hey, Brad. Terry Gagenhart here from Tour of the Alps. Uh, I was just wondering, what's your favourite bike ride in London? Uh, thanks, Terry. Yeah, I don't really have a favourite bike ride in London. I mean, I grew up in London, and I, that was that was the norm to me. That was what I had, and I had to make the most of it. I didn't really enjoy it. Once I moved away from there and saw what else training roads you could have, you kind of you realise how grateful I am to have the roads I have now where I live compared to, you think, well, what if I had this when I was a kid? You know, rather than riding up Kilburn High Road or Regent's Park, which is ever popular now for people in London... But I didn't really. I mean, Teo grew up in London, and I know he's got some rides out out there that he. I know why he's asked this question because I think there's, there's a ride called the Teo ride, which some of the locals where he lived kind of it's renowned for. But no, I didn't really have any favourite rides. It was um, a means to an end. It facilitated what I needed to do, and it was it was a ball ache. You know, it was it was hard work. You know, London. You know, getting abuse as a cyclist and traffic lights constantly. You know, you know, I can't imagine trying to do efforts now. You just had to ride with what was put in front of you. So it was an amazing difference. Any advice? for Teo as he as he goes into week two sort of post rest day he's 31st on GC 
it's not over. You know, it can change. You can jump 10 places, 20 places, one ride in the mountains, and it, it can change everything in the Giro. And it's not over to the end. Last week's been spoken about how brutal it is, and I think that's going to that's gonna decide this race. Brian, is that how you say it? Very much so. It, it, well, the lower it's just places a learning anyway, curve. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just a learning curve. And I, I tell you what, it's nice to see that Team Aeneas are getting behind both himself and, and Sivakov yeah. and, and going through the process because tales the future. And too many times you get thrown, like I get thrown into the, the Giro d'Italia, my first Grand Tour, and I wasn't really told anything. I was just told to, to help Andy Hampson as much as I could. But now they've gone through the process of this is a future uh, Grand Tour contender. Let's look at him as if he's a contender now. It doesn't matter if he finishes 10 minutes down, 20 minutes down. Let's go through that process. And he's learning that process and he'll get used to that process, which is going to help him in the future. OK, well, that's it for this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Thanks to our sponsor, Lacquer Bicycle Insurance, powered by the community. Uh, thanks Brad where can listeners be entertained on uh, on social media in the meantime uh, so we go so we go uh, Simon thank you for joining us uh, you're at Tom and Garens thanks Simon for having Garens, me Simon nice and easy and Brian where can we keep up with uh, with what you're doing for the following week well you can keep in touch with me through Twitter and Instagram at Bryce Smithy lovely uh, plus you can follow Eurosport on Twitter and Instagram at Eurosport underscore UK and you can find us on Facebook. Uh, chaps, many thanks for joining us again. Thanks too to all of Shenoui. Finally, from me, Graham Wilgos, it's goodbye. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, share your thoughts and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Brad, we'll see you next week. Yes, see you next week. The Bradley Wiggins Show is a Muddy Knees Media production for Eurosport. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.